What up, yo? Welcome to No Better Death, the podcast that knows while you can die no better death than your own, that doesn't mean we can't take a look for the unusual and the noteworthy in the deaths of others. Each episode will take an in-depth look at some out-of-the-ordinary deaths and the events surrounding them. This show will contain explicit language and graphic situations. I'm your host, Sick Grayson. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in for episode 3 of this thing I am still doing. Uh, Not really sure how well it's going over or how many people are listening at this point. Uh, I'm still trying to get it... get it across the interwebs and screens that everybody puts their eye holes into. Um, So, but uh, here I am again, doing it. Um, It occurred to me while I was getting ready for this episode that I haven't really said much about myself on here other than my name. Uh, that I like dark shit and I was married on Halloween. Uh, I've been so worried about the sound and sticking to my talking points and getting the podcast right that I've just sort of come across as stiff and factual like I'm reading the news or something. You know, at some point you gotta get to know the host, right? Uh, a lot of the podcasts I listen to could be about anything, the subject matter. I mean, it's important, but ultimately it's the hosts that hook me and get me addicted to a show. I could listen to any of 5,000 true crime and murder podcasts, but I listen to my favorite murder because I like Georgia and Karen. There's a million comedy podcasts out there, but I listen to Harmontown because I like the guys on that show. So, uh, you know, I guess at some point I have to tell you a little bit about me, but it seems kind of weird just coming at somebody like, here's my biography, uh, all about me, you know, like it. It feels like you need to catch everybody's attention and let them know who you are right away in order to, you know, get their attention and keep them interested in the show. But, uh, I don't know, it just, it it seems forced, you know. But, uh, so I thought I'd tell you a few facts about your host here, Sick Grayson. Uh, For one, that's not my name, surprise, surprise. My birth certificate doesn't say Sick Grayson. My parents weren't Mr. and Mrs. Grayson. They didn't die in a circus acrobatic accident. Um, It's just I kind of work uh, in a capacity for the government, and I don't want this show or anything I say on it to get back to them. Uh, Not that I think I'd ever do anything offensive, just the less my employers know about me, the better, you know? Um, So just to cover my ass, I use the pseudonym. Uh, Interesting note, my real name is kind of messed up. My birth certificate is misspelled, and apparently it counts because it's on a piece of paper. So until I file a pain in the ass bunch of paperwork to get it fixed, uh, my birth certificate is misspelled. Uh, Coming to you from Colorado Springs. I'm not from here. I moved here about three and a half years ago from a town in western Nebraska. got stuck there for what was supposed to be six months and turned into 12 years uh, and before that I just sort of lived all over originally from Tupelo Mississippi birthplace and childhood home of one Elvis Aaron Presley uh, wife two kids I'm into technology traveling reading writing I go to a fuck ton of concerts I've written a couple of short novels that are available on Amazon if you can figure out who I am uh, listen to a lot of music. Uh, my favorite stuff is electro-industrial, like Velvet Acid Christ, Skinny Puppy, Wumps Cut, stuff like that. Uh, a lot of underground hip-hop, you know, Hobson, Jaron Benton, Twisted, Tech 9 I love uh, new wave and 80s stuff like Depeche Mode and The Cure. 
Favorite XM radio station is Rock the Bells, old school hip hop. Greatest band of all time is Guns N' Roses. I've seen Head P.E. and Mushroom Head more times than I can count. And uh, Johnny Cash is one of the greatest musical artists of all time. Uh, if it's darker, it has a good beat, I dig it. Speaking of music, the music that you hear on the show is made by me. Uh, I've got kind of a little recording studio set up here in the basement uh, where I record the podcast and music. I never really seem to finish that many songs. I get like two-thirds of the way through and bail on it, but it turns out those little snips work pretty well for background and intro music on the show. And I guess that's pretty much all you really need to know about me. I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, over the course of the show, I'll say more and more, but for now, I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, On to show-related things. If you're not following the No Better Death Facebook page, you should check that out. Uh, every day I post up a few factoids. I'm calling it Today in Death. Uh, every day I post up one or two stories about deaths and tragic events that occurred on that day in history. And every now and then I throw up pics from my travels. Uh, so far, I, you know, I've thrown up uh, some pictures from the National Museum of Funeral History. Uh, I think Dimebag's Grave, uh, a couple other things. So yeah, if you're not checking out the Facebook page, go do that. Uh, we're just No Better Death uh, on Facebook. That's also the Gmail email address, and pretty much our name everywhere except Twitter is No Better Death One. But pretty much anywhere where there's social media or podcast, you can find us on there. I got everything set up, I think, except Spotify. So I'm still working that one out. Uh, I've been thinking about segments I can introduce to the show to stretch it out since right now uh, the last two episodes I think were 32 and 36 minutes um, one idea I had is maybe checking out a news story or two from current events and, and talking about that for a little bit uh, one that did catch my attention is this uh, cop in Dallas that shot someone in their apartment uh, if you've if you've heard the story you kind of know about it uh, and right now there's not a ton of details available So I'm just going to sort of give you the rundown in case you haven't heard about it. Uh, 30-year-old Amber Geiger, a four-year veteran of the Dallas Police Force, went home around 10 p.m. on Thursday, September 6th. She parked her car on the fourth-floor parking lot of her building and walked to the door of her apartment, which she claims to have found slightly ajar with a dark silhouette moving around inside. Uh, She says she attempted to speak to the person in the apartment, but he ignored her verbal commands. And when communication failed, she fired her gun twice into the darkness, hitting the suspect once and killing him. But here's the thing. Amber doesn't live on the fourth floor. She lives on the third floor directly below, and I apologize if I get this guy's name wrong, Botham Shim Jean, the man she had just killed. there's a lot here that doesn't add up she claims it was just a simple mistake like she she got the apartment wrong thought someone had broken into her apartment and shot him but how do you get the floor wrong like that's not just the wrong door that's a whole other floor and she should have noticed this at some point like i'm assuming the the number or letters on her apartment door are different if you live on the third floor your number would be something like 35 or 3f and then the apartment on the floor above you, on the fourth floor, would be, you know, 45 or 4F, like a hotel. Not to mention, the hall would look at least somewhat different. Maybe not much, but enough to notice, hey, I'm on the wrong floor. 
Also, this guy's apartment had a red doormat in front of it, which her apartment didn't have. What her apartment did have was a dog, a dog that was not present in the apartment she had walked into. Not to mention things like furniture, lighting patterns, etc., which she says it was too dark to see. But if it was so dark she couldn't see anything, how did she manage to hit a guy? Like, if you're shooting into the dark, two shots, you're probably gonna miss, and one of them hits, so it couldn't have been that dark in there. And there's also the issue of her report that the door was open when she got there. Neighbors are saying they heard her pounding on the door yelling, let me in, at least twice. A few moments later, shots were fired, and Jean was heard saying, oh my god, why did you do this? So according to what neighbors heard, the door wasn't open when Amber got there. She went to the door, her key wouldn't open it, and rather than take a moment to figure out why it wasn't working, she started demanding that whoever was in the apartment let her in, dude opened the door, and she shot him, then realizes it's the wrong apartment, right? I mean, that seems like the more logical story here, but she fudged the details to try to make it sound less bad that she shot a guy in his own apartment for no reason, that she basically broke into someone's home and killed them. She didn't even get arrested for three days. Three days. If those roles were reversed and he shot her, there wouldn't have even been an arrest. Whoever responded to the call would have shot this dude on sight. She's out right now, walking around, living life, waiting to go to court on manslaughter charges. Not murder, manslaughter. The lesser offense. At this point, the case has been handed over to Texas Rangers and is under investigation. Like, the details... Of the story aside, the crux of the issue is how did she get the floor and apartment wrong? I mean, I saw the mugshots of the lady and maybe, you know, the disheveled appearance, the bags under the eyes, the look on her face. Maybe that's just from spending the last three days uh, living with the fact that she murdered someone in their own home, you know. And I'm sure people in Dallas aren't being exactly kind to this lady, but I don't know, dude. If you look at her, something's up. I mean, I grew up with addict and alcoholic parents. I can kind of see the signs of something going on in that regard, and I wouldn't be surprised if her toxicology screen comes back uh, less than clean. I'm not going to speculate what or anything, and I could be totally wrong, but that's just that's the vibe I get from this lady when I saw her mugshots. I mean, I, I'm not a detective, so I don't know. I'm reading the same story everyone else is. What else? What else we got? Oh, uh, I guess another big uh, death in the last week or so was Mac Miller, uh, the rapper. He OD'd. I can't say I was a fan. I didn't listen to his music, uh, so I, I don't know if he was any good or not. He's just one of those artists that never came onto my radar. Uh, but I really just, I have zero sympathy for overdose deaths. Like, it, it's the loved ones that suffer in an OD, yeah, but for the person that actually OD'd, I feel like you're a grown-ass person, you know when you put something in your body it can go wrong, you know overdosing is a possibility, you know you could die, and you know that fact becomes more and more true every time you put more shit in your body. If you fuck around and kill yourself with drugs, that's suicide. You knew there was going to be consequences. You don't get sympathy, you don't get to be mourned the same as a grandmother who died from cancer, you don't get eulogized like a child that got hit by a car. 
You don't get to have a vigil like a school or police shooting victims. You made a choice. You opted out whether you meant to or not. You know, and, and that's that's my thoughts on it. Uh, I know some people may not agree. I would apologize, but I wouldn't mean it and don't want to. Uh, and that's all I got from the week's headlines. Uh, I may try to, you know, next episode work in a few more stories, stretch that part out. Uh, you know, three episodes and still sort of getting a feel for the lay of the show. So, all right. So I suppose you saw that the title of this episode is Down in the Park. Just like the beloved Gary Newman song. I love some Gary Newman. Uh, Originally, this episode was going to be about deaths in national parks, of which there have been tons. The weird part is I couldn't really get enough details on any of them specifically to make a full episode. I mean, I can get the details on a girl who drowned in beer 200 years ago in London, but for some reason, you can only find a couple paragraphs about each park that happened in, or each death that happened in a national park. Uh, and it looks like when other people have tried to request information, you know, based on the Freedom of Information Act, th- those requests are routinely denied, and the ones that are approved are heavily redacted. So it kind of seems like the government denies most press access and gives little to no details about whatever happens in national parks. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's a cover-up, like they're hiding something, or maybe they just don't want the parks getting a bad rap. Um, So I don't know, but I had to change the theme of the episode because I couldn't get enough information on it. Uh, So I switched it from national parks to amusement parks. I wasn't about to waste a perfectly good Gary Newman reference. And that was me playing Down in the Park on keyboard. Uh, I kind of was bummed about this one story, though. Well, I mean, I wasn't... The story is a bummer, but uh, it was one I was wanting to use on the National uh, Park-themed episode, uh, but had to cancel that and change it to amusement parks. But uh, here's the gist of the story I was wanting to do. Uh, This guy named Timothy Clam. This guy booked a helicopter tour of the Grand Canyon three weeks in advance. Uh, When it was time to get on the helicopter, he demanded the seat by the pilot, uh, which is also the seat by the door. He took the whole tour, and then on the way back, removed his seatbelt, opened the door, and jumped the fuck out. Dude fell 4,000 feet to his death. Pre-planned. This guy chose this in advance and stuck with it for three weeks. That just blows my mind. Like, nowhere in that three weeks of really thinking about it, being like, okay, I'm going to get on this helicopter and go die on purpose in the most, uh, at least for a split second, painful way possible. Right? That, man, that is that takes guts or just utter insanity. I can't tell which. Uh, what I read about the story said it took at least 15 park rangers to pick up all the pieces of this guy. 
But uh, yeah, I couldn't really get enough information on it to make a full story for the show. But God, that just, that sounds gnarly. I mean, I thought just dying in a regular plane crash sounded horrible. I think that may sound even worse. So, amusement parks it is. Uh, everybody loves a day at the amusement park, right? Overpriced drinks, greasy and sugar-filled, unhealthy, even more overpriced food, scorching heat that only breaks for the occasional downpour, noise, crowds, parking, sunburn, wet, stained, mold-smelling public bathrooms, and kids everywhere. Little disease factories clamoring to spend mommy and daddy's hard-earned money. And of course, the rides. Clattering, shoddily built monoliths of metal and wood, loosely held together by expired inspection stickers designed to use height, speed, and imagery to trigger our fear response for a few seconds before safely returning us to the comfort of the ground where we rejoin our overpriced drinks and giggle about how ridiculous our fear was in the face of something we voluntarily endured and knew beforehand was meant to be mimicry. Well, most of the time. Your chances of being killed or seriously injured on an amusement park ride are 1 in 17 million. Chances of dying in a plane crash, 1 in 11 million. Car wreck, 1 in 5,000. That common. So yeah, rides are relatively safe compared to many of the everyday banal activities in which we participate. But when something goes wrong, it goes really wrong. Case in point, our first story in the episode. Your sunblock and water bottles, kids. We're going to Six Flags Great Adventure in Jackson Township, New Jersey, May 11th, 1984. That's right, the same year as the Bhopal Gas Leak discussed in the last episode. 1984! We already did this like a week ago! What's your favorite ride at an amusement park? The death-defying roller coasters, the high-flying swings, the metal cage they shoot 30 stories into the air on a pair of rubber bands, or maybe my favorite, the Gravitron. All designed to give maximum thrills, all have the possibility for disaster. But do you ever think about something going wrong with the other rides, the ones that aren't so intense, like the teacups or the carousel? Maybe the haunted house? That one doesn't even leave the ground. It doesn't move. It's just a dark corridor with strobe lights and insidious yet cartoonish cackles blaring through speakers still being used long after the paper cones inside them deteriorated. The haunted house seems like the safest quote-unquote ride at any amusement park. So safe, in fact, that it's typically an all-ages attraction. But this haunted house would turn out to be the scariest one ever. That probably sounded like the cheesiest thing I could possibly say in that moment, right? Well, this haunted house turned out to be the scariest one ever. Built and leased to Six Flags in 1979 by Tom's River Haunted House Company, the haunted castle consisted of 17 semi-trailers, eight on each side in a mirror configuration, 
and one in the center housing the control unit and the changing rooms for the actors. Originally, management at the park didn't think much about the new attraction. They brought it in as a seasonal thing, meant to be operated only in the evenings and torn down at the end of the season. Uh, probably the fall slash Halloween time of the year, I'm assuming. Nothing I read really specified that, but I mean, when do you put up a haunted house? Around Halloween, right? But the attraction proved to be more popular than, in, than expected. In fact, it was the most popular ride in the park. So Six Flags decided to keep the haunted house permanently, operating it during all park hours, uh, one side when business was slow, and uh, opening both sides during peak hours. And it sounds like it's pretty big, right? I mean, 17, well, I guess 16 semi-trailers? Uh, that's a lot of room. I mean, it had enough room that there was a gatekeeper who let you across the moat and the drawbridge. Then you went down a 450-foot corridor to the main door of the castle and then went inside. So, pretty big setup here. I, I could see why it was so popular. Uh, the house came with scary scenes pre-installed, so all the park had to do was set up the trailers and provide a facade. The outside of the house. In this case, it was a castle. So basically, the manufacturer designs the inside and ships it to the park uh, with everything ready to go, and they just set it down and slap some plywood in front of it. You know, creepy circus, mental asylum, whatever the theme of the house is. Um, so pretty easy uh, setup on their end. The manufacturer, Tom's River, used the following materials for the internal construction of the trailers and the props they contain. Okay, this is what this thing was built out of. Plywood, wax, fabric, foam rubber, plastic, and tar paper. This is everything flammable ever. I mean, it, it almost seems like they had to have purposefully chose those materials. Like at a company meeting, uh, uh, the the main contractor, the supervisor, like, okay, guys, what's the most flammable things we can use to build this? Yes, Bill. Why don't we make it out of tires and kerosene? Great idea, Bill. Love it. But kerosene's a liquid. We can't actually build anything with it. Uh, we could fill the moat with it. Nice. I didn't think about that. Put it on the board, Tim. Tires and kerosene. What else you got? Like... You're, you're just asking for a problem. You're waiting for disaster right out the gate. Packed with visitors, some with family and friends, some enjoying a solo night out, and some on class outings, the evening of Friday, May 11th, 1984, began as any other, until the fire started at 6.35. Fanned by outside air conditioners that pushed air up through the floor, the fire spread rapidly through the highly flammable ride. One witness testified that when she reached the hunchback display, she saw flames come from around the corner. At first she thought it was part of the show, but then smelled the smoke and realized that the flames were real. Her and her group started shouting fire as they ran back to the entrance. Firefighters from 11 surrounding communities responded and the fire was reported as under control at 7.45. So this thing burned for about an hour, and it seemed like everybody made it out. So far, so good. A bummer for the park, but nothing major yet. 
The park even stayed open during the fire. They didn't even shut down. This is how little they were concerned about it. They didn't evacuate or tell everyone to stay away. Uh, they were just like, hey guys, a little fire over here. Don't worry. Uh, go get a funnel cake or something and enjoy the rest of the park. You know, that kind of thing. No one realized lives were lost until later that night. Firefighters searching through one of the burned out trailers discovered the bodies of eight teenagers. Eight burnt so badly that at first they were mistaken for melted mannequins. The cause of death was smoke inhalation and carbon monoxide poisoning. The eight bodies were placed into white, not black, bright white body bags so personnel could be sure to tell these from mannequins, you know, like, the, like hey, this is a real corpse here, this isn't part of the show. The deaths weren't announced until about 10.45 that night, four, out, four hours after the fire started, uh, and even then, the names weren't released. Uh, luckily, only one side of the ride was open at the time, and the remaining 21 people made it out alive, some with moderate smoke inhalation, but alive. Several of the deceased were there on a school trip. 17 buses and over a thousand students from multiple schools had been in attendance that evening. When some of their children didn't get off the buses that returned to the schools around 1 a.m., parents knew to expect the worst. Eight days later, a 13-year-old boy would come forward stating that he had been afraid to enter the haunted house, so a 14-year-old boy, whom he didn't know but seemed familiar with the attraction, offered to escort him through. While inside the house, the pair reached a stretch of corridor with the lights out like a, there was supposed to be a strobe light but it was malfunctioning so there wasn't any light the 14 year old used a lighter to guide them through the hallway at some point the lighter brushed against a piece of exposed foam from the wall padding the foam caught fire and when the boys tried but failed to put the fire out they claimed to have ran out the exit yelling fire but in the crowd of thousands that were there they went unnoticed 13-year-old claims he doesn't know who the 14-year-old was, he didn't get his name, and remains adamant that it was not he himself who started the fire. No other witnesses reported seeing this mystery 14-year-old, and to this day, uh, such a person has never been identified or even verified by anyone other than this kid. So some people speculate that it was this 13-year-old who came forward uh, at least trying to tell the story but not getting in trouble but police have never been able to, to prove one way or the other if it was this kid or if there was another kid but regardless of who did it uh, you know a piece of foam caught on fire why didn't the smoke alarms or the fire detectors go off why didn't the sprinklers come on because there were none there were no alarms, no sprinklers, no certificate of occupancy, and no building permit. In fact, the Jackson Township fire inspector said he had never even inspected the haunted castle. Even though the house had been there for five years, it was considered a temporary structure because the trailers were still on wheels, and in Jackson Township, temporary structures were not subject to the building and fire code of permanent structures. But it wasn't just the town that had dropped the ball. The state's Department of Labor was responsible for the inspection of rides and attractions. The town was responsible for building and fire codes, and the state's Department of Community Affairs were responsible for making sure those codes were enforced. 
and OSHA at some point should have done a walkthrough to monitor for employee safety. The ball was dropped on the local, state, and federal levels all around. It was later found out that the haunted castle had been in violation of dozens of state fire codes that the town said didn't apply due to it being a temporary structure. But, I mean, you can't put all the blame strictly on the government here, though. Yes, Six Flags technically hadn't broken any laws and was told they were in compliance, but they had their own internal semi-annual inspections. The company brought its own consultants through this thing multiple times in the past, all of whom suggested that sprinklers and alarms be installed, and management never followed through on the suggestions, stating that the upgrades would be too expensive. And since it wasn't legally required, they just chose not to. Park managers and employees would later testify that none of the exit lights were working, bulbs were missing from other lights, the exposed foam was a known issue, and the park was aware that visitors frequently used matches and lighters in areas with the missing bulbs so they could find their way through the house. Tom's River Haunted Houses and Six Flags as well as two Six Flags executives, were indicted on charges of aggravated manslaughter. The prosecution argued that ignoring the warnings of the safety consultants had led to the tragedy. The park and the manufacturer argued that it was an act of arson, not their fault, and no amount of prevention could have stopped it. After eight weeks of trial and 13 hours of deliberation, the jury found Tom's River Haunted Houses and Six Flags not guilty as they had followed what they were told were the town's fire codes. The two executives avoided the trial by entering a pretrial program that allowed them to perform community service. Eight kids die and they have to pick up cans on the side of the road or give a speech at a school or something. Dismayed by the court's ruling, the families of the eight victims filed civil suits against Bally, the parent company of Six Flags, and George Mahana, owner of Tom's River Haunted Houses. Ocean County, New Jersey, Jackson Township, and school districts of some of the students were also named in the cases. Seven of the eight cases were settled out of court for $2.5 million each. The eighth family went to court and was rewarded only $750,000. Like, that fucking backfired. But that, man, that's bullshit. Like, I, I get it. They wanted to press it. They wanted justice for a lost loved one, a, a dead family member. Uh, that was, you know, killed on, on an unsafe piece of property owned by someone else, a conglomerate, a multi-million dollar company. You know, whoever they lost was worth more than two and a half million dollars, and they got screwed, 750000 Immediately after the fire, several other haunted houses across New Jersey closed for inspections and upgrades. Park attendants suffered for the next year, and regulations governing amusement park rides and attractions were changed around the globe. In 2003, a documentary entitled Doorway to Hell was produced by a longtime patron of the Haunted Castle. This documentary claimed that employees not called as witnesses at the trial had reported the exits were actually chained shut that day, that diagrams of the building used at trial were inaccurate, and that there was a fence in place to separate visitors from the actors that would have made it even harder for the visitors to get through to escape the fire. 
I wasn't able to find the names of most of the victims. I found one or two, but most of them were underage, so the details aren't necessarily public. Um, and, I, and I don't think we really need the names, you know, it's... I mean, does anyone see the pattern here across all three episodes of this show that I've done so far? Negligence and people not speaking up. The molasses accident, the Bhopal gas leak, and this. Owners and employees, townspeople, local government. Everyone knows there's something wrong with these places. There's things that need to be fixed. Recommendations that have been made at every turn. And yet the people in charge just ignore it. Or the people that know about the problems never speak up. And, and this isn't something that just used to happen. It happens every day. It's happening all around you right now. You know, like, I, I don't understand why people don't just speak up. If you see something and, and say something. And if whoever you tell doesn't listen, go over them, go around them, go under them. You know, do what you got to do to get it fixed. I mean, what if a light bulb? A 75 cent light bulb had been just enough light for those kids to make it through that hallway and not had to use the lighter. Eight teenagers wouldn't have been killed that night. If they were 17 at the time, they'd be around 51 now. Their parents would have had 34 more birthdays and Christmases with them. You know, maybe they'd be married with their own kids that they take to the haunted castle. Maybe, who knows, man, maybe one of them would have climbed Mount Everest or helped find a cure for AIDS. You never know. And now we'll never know because of something as simple as like, hey, put a piece of duct tape on that foam until we can replace the pad. Now it's time for five fast facts about death. One. 35 million of your cells die every minute. Two, every five seconds, a woman dies from pregnancy or childbirth complications. Three, you are more likely to die from slipping in the tub than you are from an act of terrorism. I call bullshit. I think the terrorists are the ones making the tubs extra slippery to begin with. We need to build a wall around our bathtubs so the terrorists and murderers can't get in. Bigly huge bathtubs. That, that was my, uh, my Trump impression there. Four. There are about 200 bodies on Mount Everest. Some of them serve as markers for other climbers to know how far they are from the top. Five. On average, Vending machines kill 13 people a year. Now, I don't have the statistics on that one, but I mean, obviously the most logical explanation is that they're all Decepticons disguised as vending machines. And when no one's looking, they disintegrate humans with, with a death ray or a plasma cannon. And then the government covers it up as part of the alien conspiracy. Normally this would be the part where I come in with another full length story. Uh, but instead, I'm going to run down a few different stories, just, you know, kind of short form on a few. Because uh, there's a lot of accidents to choose from, and I didn't really know which other ones to go with. You know, the Haunted Castle was the big one because it's just so fucked up. Uh, let's see, what else do I got here? Um, do, do, do. Oh, the one that caught my attention the most, uh, the story of Space Journey. 
Space Journey was a rocket launch simulator at Echo Venture Valley Amusement Park in Shenzhen, China. On June 29, 2010, uh, the ride reached uh, 2G speed and simulated the gravity of a real rocket launch like it was supposed to do. Uh, so this thing sounds pretty intense. I mean, if you hit 2Gs on a ride, that's, that's pretty hardcore. Uh, it had 11 pods holding four riders each. Uh, those people who were on the ride at the time reported a loss of power, followed by the smell of burning electronics and a loud bang or explosion. The pods turned upside down, panicking the passengers. Then one of the pods broke off from the ride and slammed into a bunch of other pods on its way down. It dropped 50 feet. Six people were killed and 10 injured, most of them seriously. You know, like power outage. The ride itself was fine, but when the power on one of these things go out, lots of parts on it go out. The hydraulics stop working so it can't keep balance or operate the arms and drives properly. Electromagnets stop holding things. The brakes can disengage. Like It gets pretty bad, and that's what happened here, man. Just the, the power to the ride cut out, and the, the whole thing like fell apart, basically. Another one that caught my attention was the Mindbender roller coaster accident at Galaxyland in the West Edmonton Mall in Alberta, Canada. The Mindbender was the world's largest indoor triple loop roller coaster, and it was built as one of the safest roller coasters in the world uh, until the evening of June 14, 1986. Uh, the last car of the train derailed just before the final loop. So they made it through the first two. They're almost to the end. Uh, and then something happens. One of the cars, the one in the back derails. It doesn't clear the loop. And instead starts rolling backwards while fishtailing out of control. The train slammed into a concrete support pillar, causing the lap bars to disengage, tossing passengers to the mall floor below. Three of the four passengers in the car that derailed died, and the fourth was critically injured, along with 19 others. Investigators would discover that three bolts in one of the wheels on the last car had come loose, causing the derailment. The ride closed until the following January, when it reopened with anti-rollback features, seatbelts, and headrests. Okay, I can only imagine how horrible that must be. I don't, I don't do roller coasters. I don't do a lot of rides. Like I'll do Scrambler, Gravitron. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I think that's about it. Bumper cars. You know, like I do all the the, the wimpy rides, man. I, if I get dizzy, I'm dizzy for hours. I hate heights. I hate high speeds. Like I, I don't do rides, right? One year, my wife tells me that for Mother's Day, she wants me to get on a roller coaster with her. At the time, I was like eight years a vegetarian, and this is how, how terrified I was of the roller coaster idea that I was like, hey, how about we go, uh, we go get a steak, right? You've always wanted to get a steak with me, huh? huh? No, she wants me to get on the roller coaster. So we go to Alicia's Gardens in Denver, which started as an independent park and then it was bought by Six Flags for a long time and then it went back to being an independent park. Um, they have this one coaster that I picked the shortest, smallest one there. I wouldn't even call it a roller coaster. It was just like a piece of a roller coaster. It was a single loop. You went for a little bit, you dropped down around the loop, came back down around the loop. 
we get up there and I'm terrified. I, I'm about to cry. Like it is, I am a split second from crying when the guy checks the, the safety bar over me. And I remember saying, I don't think I can do this. This guy did not give two fucks. He shook the bar, walked on to the next person. I'm freaking out inside, dude, panicking, sweating, feeling like I could cry. And then they just, they send us on our way. We go down around the loop. I am so terrified I can't even scream. Uh, and then it stops. It stops at the very top. If I'm remembering correctly, it went down. We went around the loop once. And then on the way back that first time, it stopped at the very top. Just like dead center, top of the loop. And we're up there for 30 to 45 minutes. And th this is pretty high up. I mean, it's the smallest one at the park, but it's it's high enough that birds are like bringing pieces of hot dogs up there and just chilling to eat because that's where birds go. They go really high, right? And like, that's where we are. The, the people that running the ride aren't telling us anything. You know, the time's ticking by. I'm getting more and more terrified that something's about to happen. And at one point we hear like a maintenance guy who's on the service ladder. We hear his walkie-talkie go leaking brake or what was it? Leaking hydraulic fluid. Hydraulic fluid. The hydraulics were leaking. The hydraulics are a very key component to the operation of most amusement park rides. And I had just heard that shit was leaking. I was about to freak out. And then maybe five minutes after we heard that on the guy's walkie-talkie, they evacuated us down the service ladder all the way. And I mean, this I mean, this probably was still, like, I don't know how many stories in the air. And we had to walk all the way down this uh, little fire escape part on the roller coaster to get down. And it was down for a while before they reopened it. They reopened it later that day, but it was down for a while. And I just... Any time I think about getting on a ride, I just remember that the one time I did, I was probably 30 seconds from being killed. That would be just my life. That's why I'm not getting on a plane, man. I'm terrified of being that high in the sky. I'm not getting on a plane because with my luck, you know, the one time I do, that fucker's going to slam into a mountain. Like after, after the roller coaster accident? No, I haven't been on a roller coaster since. Anyway, back to the story. Mindbender, cars fly off, hit a pillar, throws everybody to the ground, three dead, one seriously injured. The guy that survived the fourth car, uh, Rod Chaco, suffered shattered legs, a crushed shoulder, broken feet, broken pelvis, broken lower back, and broke every rib on his left side. He had gone there that night with his friend David Sager, who was sitting in the last row of seats with him, so it, it was Rod and David, and then in front of them was a guy named Tony and a girl named Cindy. Uh, I guess Cindy was Tony's fiance. It took uh, Rod months to heal, and he had to get metal plates in his leg. Like, it, it, he suffered some pretty gnarly injuries. Uh, but he did get better, and he worked for about 15 years before retiring due to chronic pain, which had led to a painkiller addiction that he would later kick and replace with medical marijuana. So, like, it jacked this dude's life up, and he's kind of just now getting back to normal. Uh, he did receive an undisclosed settlement from the mall, and, oh, oh, the best part, he gets 
free lifetime tickets to any mall attractions he wants. So anytime he wants, he can go back to where the most horrible thing in his life happened. He he gets in free to everything at the place where his homie died. Would you go back there? Frequently enough to need tickets to something? I get maybe going back like on the anniversary or something, but... I just, I don't know if I would have ta taken the lifetime tickets to the place where a really bad thing happened, you know. Recently, he's been petitioning the mall to erect some sort of memorial near the roller coaster to honor the memories of David, Tony, and Cindy. Uh, currently, there is a plaque in the management offices of the mall, but Ron thinks that's an inadequate memorial and wants one that everyone can see. Uh, and then the last thing I got for this for this episode, uh, this is really actually kind of interesting. And having lived in Nebraska before, you would think I'd heard of this, but uh, I hadn't until I started investigating this episode. The two deadliest roller coaster accidents in the world were both on roller coasters named Big Dipper. On June 24th, 1930, the Big Dipper at Omaha, Nebraska's Krug Park Four people were killed and 19 injured in what was at the at the time the world's biggest roller coaster accident ever. A piece of the brake system came off one of the cars and jammed the wheels of the train, causing it to jump the tracks, break through a barricade, and fall 35 feet to the ground below. It, it actually pinned. There were people down there, man. It landed on people and pinned them to the ground. 42 years later, on May 30th, 1972. The Big Dipper at London's Fun Fair, uh, five children were killed and 13 injured when the lift chain released prematurely and sent the train rolling backwards down an incline where it then hit a turn and derailed. But the coaster was torn down soon after and the park was closed that same year. And uh, that's it. What did we learn? What did we learn this episode? Sometimes simulated fear can become very real very quickly. Corporations don't care about your safety, which seems to be an ongoing theme uh, in this podcast. And never get on any ride named the Big Dipper because it is going to murder you. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, check us out next time. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, we're everywhere now pretty much except Spotify. So just uh, look for us. Uh, no Better Death, wherever you're at, your social medias, your podcast directories and applications. Uh, we've even got an Instagram that we never use. Uh, and please do feel free to contact us on the Facebook page or send an email to nobetterdeath at gmail.com whenever, wherever if you have personal stories or experiences with death, suggestions for stories you'd like to hear on the show, whatever you got, send it in. You never know what'll make it onto the show. And the more you guys give me, the more I can give you. Until next time, I am Sick Grayson. Try not to die. Park with a friend called Five.